So we are picking up Parshas Vayigash, and we are continuing in our studies of Rebbe but we're actually going to take a bit of a um, step back to see what's going to emerge as in this week's Parsha. We open up, their source sheets are in back by the food. The, um, our Parsha opens up with a showdown between Yosef and Yehuda, Joseph and Judah. But in order to really appreciate what's happening here, I think we have to take a step back and look at who is Yehuda, who does he represent, what was his life, and through that we can get an appreciation to what exactly is happening when Judah confronts Joseph. So just very quickly to bring us up to speed of where we are this week, and then we'll take our we'll do our our dive into who Yehuda was. We don't know the ending, right? But this are the Torah yet? But at this point. At this point, still, the brothers still do not know who Yosef is. Yosef, he looks different, he has a beard. For whatever reason, which is also very curious, the brothers do not recognize Yosef. Yosef says to them, I am only going to give you food if you bring your brother Benjamin down, which the brothers protest, but ultimately they realize it's the only way in which they can get food and survive. They bring Benjamin down, and what does Yosef do? He orchestrates some sort of scheme where he accuses Benjamin of stealing his gold, his gold and the beautiful goblet, and it says, now Benjamin has to stay with me. Mm-hmm. At this point, it's too much. And our parasha opens up with this epic scene of Yehuda standing in the palace of Yosef, facing him and pleading with him, take my life over Benjamin's life, we can't do this to my father, after all, my father already lost a son, going on and on. We'll go through that in depth. By the way, just for a moment, put yourself into Yehuda's shoes. Imagine walking into the enemy's house alone. His house, his guards, his soldiers, and facing him and pleading for your life. So just it's an act of heroism just right there. The question is twofold. Number one is, where are the other brothers? Okay, it only dawned on me this year when I read it. You have Yehuda facing Yosef alone, pleading for Benjamin's life, but there were other brothers. There were nine other brothers. How come they're not standing alongside Yehuda, at least for moral support or, or militarily support? Why are they not there? That's question number one. There's no mention of the text are there. It's like, it's like, okay, maybe. It could be, but I, I, it's, the text does not indicate they're there at all. Number two is, number two is, what exactly is going on here? Who is Yosef? So, in order to properly understand, Yosef, uh, excuse me, properly understand Yehuda, I want to take a step back to when Yehuda emerges on the scene as some sort of leader. This takes place in Bereshit's Perak Lam and Ches, there are 38, it should be in your source sheet, and this brings us to when Yosef comes to meet the brothers in what's going to be the beginning of his odyssey down to Mitzrayim. The Torah tells us that the brothers go out to Shechem, where they're going to... They're, they're shepherds. They're shepherding their flocks in Shechem. But we're in Israel, Yosef. So Yisrael, as in Yaakov, says to Yosef, Hello, Achicha, Roem, Shechem, Lecha, Vashlichem, Lelkechem, Yomar, Loheineni. He says to them, Go to your brothers who are in Shechem. It's time to go into your brothers. So he says, Okay, I'll go. Vayomar, Lo, Lech, No, Rei, Asa, Shalom, Achicha, Vashalom, Tzona, Vashvenu, Davar, Vashluchu, Me'emek, Chavra, Vayovu, Shechema. So he says, Go to your brothers and just bring you back a report. What exactly are they doing? How are they doing? Do they need anything? It seems a bit rather innocuous. Run brothers at home, the rest are in the field, and the father, daddy, wants to know how exactly everyone's doing. 
So he goes out. So by the way, the first interesting thing is, and again, we're not going to rehash what we discussed a few weeks ago, is Yosef did not have Waze. He didn't have Google Maps. He didn't, have a, he didn't even have MapQuest, which is surprising because you think they had MapQuest back then. And he's lost. So what do you do when you're lost? You ask someone for directions. Unless you're in New York City and then you pretend you know where you're going and you get more lost. It's the way it is. I remember the first day that I arrived in Chicago we, when we moved there, so I needed to find where the Uber picked you up from the airport. I approached someone, and I braced myself already. Like, I knew what it was going to be. I was braced myself for his response. The guy's like, oh, welcome to the Midwest. Let me take you by your hand and walk you down there, buy you a coffee, a Danish, and then I'll show you where the Uber is. The difference is between New York and, and the, uh, the Midwest. So either way, he finds a man, some mysterious man, an ish. Parenthetically, once, this is the share of the rub, Rabbi Salvage points out on this that there are many times we find throughout Tanakh when the Jewish people are at a pivotal moment, there's always a mysterious ish, an unnamed person who is there, who's there, who plays a role. So here we're at the pivotal moment. This is going to be the initiation of the Jewish people going down to Mitzrayim, to us becoming a people. And there's a mysterious ish where Salvation points out, this is God's hand in history. That so often when things are playing out, we just see random people, random events occurring. But when you look back at it, you realize it wasn't random, it wasn't a random man, but that was God orchestrating the entire situation of them going down to Egypt and ultimately emerging for Gadol, going to our Sinai, etc. Fine, so he finds a man, he goes, you know where my brothers are? And we don't have to, don't have to read all the psukim. He says, yeah, I saw your brothers that way. Go towards Shechem. So what happens? Again, we know at this point in the story, the, there's already a friction, there's an animosity between the brothers and Yosef. We discussed all this in previous weeks. So what happens? So the brothers see Yosef from afar, and they say one to the other, let us go, um, they, and they say, let's conspire to kill him. Let's go, let's go kill him. We're done. We're done with him. Here's an, opp- here's an opportunity. Let's take advantage of the fact our father's not here. We're in a foreign area. Let's kill our brother. Let's go back to just the beginning. It was Yisrael said to Yosef. Why didn't say Yosef? Okay, so I, I, we can discuss this next year. But I, 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 I'm just, I, I'm really, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm not rehashing. I'm just, giving, yeah, I'm building up who Yehuda was. Because it's very interesting to see the role that Yehuda plays. So then he, he comes closer to them. And we, again, we, we, we discuss this as, as more, they said, here comes the Balachalomos, here comes the dreamer, etc. So what happens? Um, they said, let's go, let's kill him. We'll throw him into one of the pits here in the fields, and we'll tell everyone yeah, he was killed by, a, by a, a wild animal. And then we'll see what happened to his dreams. The big dreamer, the guy who tells us he's going to be the leader, he'll end up dead at the bottom of a pit. Vayishma Ruvain, so Ruvain, who is the eldest brother, he hears what's going on. He hears what's going on, and he says, We're not, let's, let's not kill him. So Ruvain says, Let's shed no blood here, rather, let's cast him into a pit. As he's trying to save his brother's life by just putting him in a pit, and his intention was he was going to go and save and bring him back to their father, bring him back to the father. So what happens? That's exactly what they do. Um, and then they, Yosef comes, they throw him into the pit, the pit that has no water in it. Rashi says, why, didn't he, why stressing there's no water? So it says again, there was no water, but it wasn't just a pit. There were scorpions, there were snakes inside. And then what do the brothers do? They move on. They go, they have a nice meal. 
At which point, at some point during the meal, they raise their eyes, they see that there is a caravan of Yishmaelim uh, approaching. And, they, and this is where the key moment for Yehuda. Again, here's the set the stage. Yosef's now in the pit. They're sitting on the picnic benches, eating their meal. Yehuda says to his brother, What good is it going to be if we kill our brother? Which, interestingly, already Yehuda told them, not, excuse me, Reuben had said, don't kill the brother. Yehuda's now reiterating it. He says, what good is it if we kill our brother? Come, let's sell him to the Yishmaelim. But let us not do away with him, for after all, he still is our own flesh and blood. So what happens? Yehuda has a suggestion, and immediately, what do they do? So the brothers say, okay. And they, they pull Yosef out of the pit, they sell him for, to the Yishmaelim, and that's the end of it. And just one more piece, just before we start putting things together. At that point, Reuven returns. Where was Reuven? So the, the, all the Midrashim point out he wasn't there. When they sat down to eat, Reuven went off on his own. He comes back, he looks into the pit, and he realizes Yosef wasn't there. So, although his intention was to save Yosef, he lost his opportunity. There are a lot of interesting things going on here. But I think what emerges is as follows. Who's the oldest brother? Reuven. Reuven. Who's the most assertive brother? Who's the one who spoke first? Reuven. Yet... It's Yehuda and his charismatic personality who they follow. Right? Yehuda is the one who says, let's throw, let's throw him into a pit, now let's sell him. Yehuda reiterates, let's not kill him. Even though Reuben already said, let's not kill him, it's only when Yehuda says, let's not kill him. I'm like, okay, let's not kill him. Yehuda says, Yehuda says, let's sell him, and what do they all do? They immediately proceed to sell him. Reuben returns, and it's like we realize they never really listened to Reuben. He was the oldest brother, but they didn't pay heed to him so much. Rashi actually goes so far as to say that one of the reasons Yehuda is faulted with the sale of Yosef was because although there was so much animosity between the brothers, so much hostility between the brothers, had Yehuda said, had Judah said, let's bring it back to our father, they would have listened. That there is some sort of natural charisma and leadership quality to Yehuda's personality. And it begins, we see it in this week's, in this, in this portion. That he's the fourth brother. He's the fourth brother, but there's something about him that, that, that lends itself to leadership, to charisma, to everyone following and heeding his word. And this is where we first see it. There's something about Yehuda that, that t- says leadership. That's number one. However, there's also something about Yosef that points toward leadership. The obvious ob- is not only his dreams, which were true, and the fact that his, he became a, a viceroy leader in, in Egypt, but there actually, this is, this is what's fascinating, there are parallels between Yehuda's life and Yosef's life. Very strong parallels. And while they always seem to be some sort of existential tension between them, as we see evidence in this week's Parsha, Yehuda and Yosef, two leaders, the leaders of the, all the brothers, the leaders of Egypt, interlocking and fighting, there are these striking parallels. And I want to read to you a few of them. First of all, the very next verse of after this entire, this entire debacle with Yosef being sold, it says, Vayera Yehuda, Yehuda went down. This is then the story of Tamar. What does it mean he went down? So there's all sorts of interpretations. Either he went down morally or spiritually. He went down in sadness, realizing he failed with guilt. He goes down. What does Yosef do? The passage says, Yosef went down. We start seeing that Yehuda has his ill-fated marriage to Batshua. doesn't end well. She dies. We see Yosef has an ill-fated relationship with Potiphar, where she tries to seduce him, and things don't go well there. We see Yehuda ultimately has a true lasting marriage to Tamar, Yosef also then has a true lasting marriage to Asna. Who was Asna, by the way? His wife? 
So there are those who 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 think that Asnat was actually the product of the union between Shechem, yeah, Shechem and and Dina. Correct. Yehuda then has two children, Perat and Zarach. Who's the older one? So the, 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 the Pesukim tell us that Peretz, although he was younger, he comes out first and he ends up becoming the leader. That's where David Melech comes from. Yosef has two sons, Menashe and Ephraim, and it's his younger one who gets blessed with the royalty and power. But there are these parallels and a striking resemblance between the lives of Yehud and the lives of Yosef. And at the same time, there's a tension between them as well. A tension, as we'll see in a minute in this week's Parsha, but a tension that I'm going to argue far outlasts and outlives just their individual personalities of Yehuda and Yosef, but actually the very personalities and what they personify. Shevet Yehuda, Shevet Yosef, the, the, the personality of Yehuda, personality of Yosef, not just a person. It's a struggle that, that lasts between them, that a struggle over the destiny, a struggle over who will be the true leader. Because again, they both have these leadership qualities that we see evidenced throughout the Torah. Any questions, comments, thoughts? Okay, so let's read, let's open up with this week's Parsha. And there is so much we can say in this, this, opening, this opening couple of verses, which we're not going to say because we don't have the time. Vayikas you love Yehuda. So Yehuda goes up, and again, there's no mention of anyone else with him. And by the way, why is there no one else with him? So I think that's also part of what it is. Yehuda is the leader. That he has the courage, the strength to say, even though it's hostile territory, I'm going into the king's house, the king who can easily decapitate me, kill me, I am I, I believe in something and I have the strength and the moral the moral authority, if you will, that I am going to enter his house and I'm going to do what I believe is right. He says, Please, my Lord, let your servant appeal to my Lord and do not be impatient with your servant, for you who are equal to Paro. So again, he said in the stage here, saying, Please, please, listen to me. By the way, again, I'm not going to, I don't want to spend too much time. As I said, we're gonna, there's so much to say here, but Rav Nachman says here that actually, Yehuda, he wasn't saying this to Yosef, he was saying this to God. But before he began this conversation, he said a short tefillah. That tefillah is not just, and this is Rav Nachman, we've discussed this all, other times, tefillah is not just a formal three times a day, but really any time before you encounter anything in your life, you're supposed to have some sort of prayer. So he says to him, he goes, let's, he goes, let's just rehash what happened here. We came, just like everyone else came to you, Yosef, to get food. And rather than saying, okay, here's your food, or give me money, and I'll give you food, you asked us the question, do you have a father or brother? So we trusted, we assumed it was just a random question, you're trying to make conversation. So we said, yeah, we have an old father, and he has a very young son, and a brother who died. So all that's left our father is his brother, Benjamin. Right? We were just making conversation, and we figured that's all it was. And then he goes, and you took advantage of that. He says to him, oh, you have another brother? Bring him to me. And you're just like, what are you doing? We were just making conversation. Why are you asking to bring us to us? This makes no sense. You're taking advantage of the fact that we're being friendly. He said, so we said to you, we can't do that. We can't do that. And you just like, I warned you already. That this is our father's most precious son. He's the youngest son. If our father loses this son as well, it's going to be too much for him. He's going he's gonna, he's gonna to die. So what do you do? You threaten us. You say, okay, I don't care. You don't bring it to me. You're not going to see me again. You're not going to get any food. There's a famine going on in the world. And you guys will not 
persevere because you will not have any food. As in, you, you twisted our arm, you forced us, you gave us no option but to bring our brother who we warned you and told you we cannot bring because it's too much for our father. So when we lent our father and, re- and reported to him and related to him your demands, so again, we told our father, and it's interesting how they're going through the whole story again. We told our father exactly your demands. And so our, your, your servant, our father, by the way, it's interesting to point out here, there are those who say this was, Yosef was punished for this. That he sat there listening to you to continuously mention your, your servant, our father, as in he heard his father, Yaakov, being degraded as a servant towards him, and, and because he, he didn't find a way to end that, so he was punished for that. You know that I had two children, and one of those children was taken out, and I was told he was, he was, he was killed, by, he was mauled by an, an animal and killed. Also interesting to point out, Yaakov doesn't say, and he was killed. Yeah, I mean, this is talk, he's... he's uh, Yehuda saying over the dialogue between Yaakov and the brothers, and he reports the father said, and I was told that he was that he was uh, mauled by an animal, which also implies that Yaakov may have had some sort of inkling of what was going on here, that something was off, something didn't, something was fishy, something didn't make sense about the entire story, which is why he's like, and I was told he was mauled. Okay. Yes, yeah, so but this could also be a turning point in that story as well. Yosef was. The question, though, I will discuss actually in the Drasha this week. Yosef, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Yosef was the uh, king of Mitzrayim. He was the second most powerful person of the most powerful country in the world. He could have easily sent a message home to Yaakov, hey, Dad, I'm alive. Why didn't he? So Professor Yolba Nun, Rabbi Yolba Nun, points out it's very possible that Yosef thought his father was in on it. After all, how did he end up in Shechem in hostile territory? His father said, go check your send him there. It could be this moment, or the beginning of this moment, when he hears Yehuda say, oh, and our father was told to follow, that's when he realized, like, oh, wait, maybe, yeah, maybe dad wasn't involved the whole time. Maybe, yeah, it could be, right. So, excuse me, uh, sorry, I went back. goes, now you want to take the other brother from me? Because you're going to cause Yosef by taking this one son who our father was, we were nervous of taking him. And our fathers said, don't take him. What are you going to do to him? Our father's soul is bound up in his soul. And the, the climax here, by the way, is then Yehuda saying to Yosef, look, it can't happen. So I'll tell you what, take my life instead of Benjamin's. And it's that, at that moment, Yosef realizes Yehuda has done teshuva. That Yehuda, the brother who was the leader, who said, let's sell Yosef up, let's get rid of Yosef, who orchestrated the plan to get rid of Yosef, is now standing there and saying, I am going to give my life up to save my brother, my younger brother. And to that moment, Yosef realizes his brother has come full circle, he's repented, at which point Yosef can't hold himself back anymore. And the Pesach tells us, he just he can't hold himself back. And he says, everyone leave, just my brothers. And he says, Ani Yosef Odavichai. It's at that moment when he realizes it could be two things. A, his father was never involved all along. And number two, that Yehuda has come full circle. That he's willing to give his own life up in order to protect Benjamin. That he just says, okay, fine. Oda Vichai.
Halachically, can you do that? Someone says, yeah, um, I'm going to kill him. I'll kill me instead. Can you, can you do that halachically? Well, maybe he didn't know he would kill him. Maybe just he, he, a servant. Maybe he'd be a servant. Yeah, you can't do that. He says, please let your servant remain as a slave to my lord instead of the boy. I mean, he said, I, 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 I exaggerate. He didn't say, kill me, but make me a slave. As he was willing to give up his, uh, his freedom. His freedom. So this is the story, the, the epic confrontation between Yehuda and Yosef. But, and that's again, you have these two leaders. You have Yosef and you have Yehuda. Yehuda is willing to walk into the lion's den, walk into the, and, and give up his life. And you have Yosef, the leader of the tribe as well, here as well. So this is, in a way, this is the end of the struggle between the two persons, of Yosef and Yehuda. But I, I believe, and I'm going to say it goes beyond this, that we're going to see now how the, the personalities of Yehuda and Yosef, what, who, what they personify, their leadership, that struggle is going to go on for eternity, or at least for a long time. I want you to look at the next, the next sources. It comes from Birchas Yaakov. It's next week's Parsha, when Yaakov blesses Yehuda. What's the blessing he gives Yehuda? So he says, Yehuda at Yoducha Achicha, your brother shall Yoducha. What does Yoducha mean? We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Your brothers will know you. What does it mean they'll know you? So the translation here from Safari was they shall praise you, which is the JPS translation. Uh, but if you look at Rashi, you look at the Sephorno, the Chaskuni, they all point out they will recognize you for who you are, as in they will recognize your leadership qualities. They will, or they will bow their heads in submission, Yehuda at Yaducha, we recognize you are the leader. So we're seeing the bracha of, ya- of, of, of Yaakov to Reuben, which interestingly and importantly, what happened? There are these 12 blessings that Yaakov gives. They don't all seem like blessings. The first three were not blessings at all, seemingly. He says to Reuven, you don't deserve to be the Bechar. You, you're, you're an angry person. You, you, run, you rush into his decision-making. And he doesn't even, doesn't even seem like a bracha. He says to him, I'm passing over you. Shimon Levi comes to them. He goes, Arabecha curses your anger that you went in the head and you, you destroyed the city of Shechem and Hamar, all that. Yehuda, okay, now we'll discuss you. Which is interesting because Yehuda himself had, was not a, no, a flawless person. After all, Yehuda... Yosef, Yehuda Tamar. But when it comes to Yehuda, suddenly Yaakov re- says to him, you're a leader. Not only are you a leader, your, your brothers will recognize you're a leader. He says to them, we can skip, Lo Yosef shevet mi Yehuda, oh, excuse me, I skipped it. Gor ari Yehuda mi teref bani alisa karav rot, akariu kaliva lovi mi yikremenu. Yehuda is like a, a, Judah is like a lion's whelp. On prey, my son, have you grown? He crouches, lies down like a lion. Comparing him to a lion, again, a lion, the symbol of the king of the jungle. Even though the lions don't really live in jungles, they live in the plains. Okay. But the king of the jungle, although I'll tell you, I was in South Africa a couple years ago, and I saw a lion being chased by an elephant. I was like, okay, who's the king of the jungle? <laughs> but they are the king. They, they, they are the king of the jungle. When he was involved with Tamar? Yes, he did Shuvah. He did, definitely did Shuvah. Okay, yeah. we'll, we're going to get back to that in a minute. The, um, so the blessing that Yaakov gives Yehuda is one of you're, you're going to be a leader. You're going to be a lion. In fact, he says, Lo yasser shevim Yehuda. The scepter shall never depart from Yehuda. As in, you, kingship will always be with you. Which is, um, we mentioned this also recently, that the Ramban, Nachmanides, fought the Hashmanayim, the Hasmoneans, that they did not follow this, this dictum of, of Yaakov, that when they usurped, or when they took over the kingship of the Jewish people, they then usurped it. They didn't 
just win the battle and say, okay, fine, we're going back to being the Levites and the Kohanim. They usurped it and they became the kings. Malchus Chashmonoi, the kings of the Chashmonoim, for the next 200 plus years. So the Ramban faults them and says, you can't do that. The scepter shall never leave Yehuda, as in the only true kingdom, kingship in Jewish people is through Shevet Yehuda. So we find right here that Yaakov is blessing Yehuda with kingship, with kingdom, with leadership. However, we also know Yosef's blessing is also, which I didn't bring down here, Yosef's blessing also seems very much like it's one of leadership. In fact, if you look in Divrei Hayamim, in the book of Chronicles, listen to the following verse and tell me what you think Yosef's role is. The sons of Reuben, the firstborns of Israel, right? He defiled his father's bed. That was the story why he lost it. It was in the Russia, in the heat of the moment, he defiled his father's bed. Therefore, his birthright was given to the sons of Yosef, the sons of Israel. His his firstborn rights were given to Yosef. And then it says, Although Yehuda became more powerful than his brother, and a leader leader came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Yosef. So it's like a very interesting, a little convoluted, but in the book of Chronicles, in different Hayyam, it seems to imply that the kingship is Yehuda's, but the birthright is Yosef's. So what's going on here? Again, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is there's a parallel in the lives of Yosef and Yehuda. There's, you have, there are a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities, and yet there's a tension running through them that both of them seem to have leadership qualities, and ultimately one of them can only be, you can only have one leader. But what's going on here? Why is it? Why is it? And I'll, I'll give you some more, by the way. The, um, the Beit HaMikdash ends up where? The Mishkan ends up where? The Mishkan ends up in Shiloh, which is the, uh, Yosef, but also ends up in, ultimately in Yehuda, it ends up in, in Yerushalayim. So the Mishkan is in Shiloh, the Beis HaMikdash is in Yerushalayim. We find later on in history, when, this king, when the kingship split, after Shlomo Melch, there was a split in the kingdom, the, king, the first king came from Shevet, Ephraim, who was blessed with leadership, by the way. Ephraim is the son of Yosef. So at a certain point, pretty soon after uh, Shlomo Melch dies, you find that the Jewish people split, and were split from then and forevermore, Two kingdoms, the kingdom of Yehuda, which is Yehuda, like also Shev Yehuda, but also the kingdom of Ephraim. So you even historically you look at it, there's something about a constant tension between Yehuda and Ephraim and, 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 Ephraim and Yosef. What's going on here? Why is it that you have these two things? And I think the question is even more interesting, which we're not going to address today, uh, or a very interesting question is, why would Yaakov seemingly give blessings to both of them? Why would he bless both of them? I want to give one more source before he, before he ties it all together. And that's in this, in this week's Haftorah. In this week's Haftorah, the, uh, I won't have to read it inside, but Yechezkel comes down and says, he, he's explaining how the, the kingdom may have split, but ultimately at the end of times, there's going to be a staff with the name of Yehuda and Yosef written on it, as they're going to become one again. They're going to become one again. So, again, all emphasizing the point that there's a, there's a struggle of personalities and there's a struggle of destiny. You have two brothers both blessed with leadership, living parallel lives, yet at the same time, there's a struggle. And the question is, who will prevail? Who's going to be the leader? Through whom is the redemption going to be fulfilled? We know Hashem ultimately chooses Yehuda. Mashiach ben, Mashiach ben is from David, right? Yehuda. Although we also know there's a Mashiach ben Yosef. There's a Mashiach from Yosef who gets killed. During the War of Gog and Magog, 
So again, you said that even when the time is Mashiach, there's going to be two Mashiachs until one is going to prevail. What's going on here? So in order to understand it, we're going to turn to Rabbi Salavechik. As always, it's a long quote, so let's read it slowly. This comes from the Rav. It's called Joseph the Ruler. It's in a book on leadership he has. I have my office. I meant to bring it. Why did Providence will that Joseph should lose and Judah win? Our question. They seemingly both have the character, characteristics and qualities and traits to be a leader. Why was the ultimately Mashiach ben David? We study the Bible as the book of destiny, determining not only a story of events that transpired 3,500 years ago, but a story of events that are transpiring now and will transpire in the future. Why then did Joseph lose the final battle? Why ultimately after the confrontation, the showdown of this week's parsha, do we find Mashiach ben Yosef is going to be killed? Mashiach ben David is going to prevail. Leadership will ultimately only come from Yehuda. In order to grasp the rationale for the strange drama, we must retrace the story of Jacob, Yaakov. One more journey. We saw the story of Yosef being sold. We saw the story of this parasha. Now let's go to the story of the story of Leah and Rachel. Now I apologize. The, uh, the way in which I, I, did, uh, I brought this down is a long quote. I, I didn't want to take a picture, so I did uh, text to... Uh, I spoke it text to word, and it, it dictated it for me, so some of the Hebrews are a little off here. Lovin had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. The Bible tests to Rachel's beauty. She was beautiful in form and pleasant to behold. See, when it says end quotation, it should have been a quotation mark. Okay, it's not perfect yet. We'll get there. Leah was not attractive. Yaakov loved Rachel very much and told Lovin that he was ready to serve seven years for her. Rachel certainly knew of Yaakov's love for her and reciprocated. Or imagine if you, if you knew this about someone... Of course you would. How would then could she have acquiesced to the scheme devised by Lovin to substitute Leah for her? How could she forget her love for and devotion to Yaakov? A young girl who was in love with a young boy, is there an emotion which is more powerful or more committed than such a love? How could she tolerate defeat in such a matter? It's a very good question. It's a very good question. How could she give up on so much? Our Talmud te- scholars tell us, this compounds the question, that not only did she not tell Yaakov about the plans of her father, but she cooperated with him and her sisters in the conspiracy, betraying the secret password she had with Yaakov. Why did Rachel participate in this deceit? Says Reisalvechik, I believe the answer is plain. The covenantal community that God established with Abraham displayed two characteristics, moral streaks. Two tendencies which prima facie are contradictory and mutually exclusive. First, the covenantal community does not shrink from power. We have not endorsed the Christian claim that the meek will inherit the earth. Throughout the Bible, people fought for power, strength, and independence. Without power, one cannot be majestic and dignified. Majesty and dignity are not sinful. They are moral virtues. Right? Judaism is not a pacifist religion. We believe in we have a whole, whole area and laws of milchama fighting. We want peace. We ask for peace, but ultimately we also we fight when we need to. Of course, the majesty and dignity of the human being expresses itself in the fact that man has inalienable rights, including the basic right to engage in productive, gainful work, to be able to hold on to the fruits of his work. Human beings have a moral right to defend their possessions and, if necessary, to fight for them. Man is not a slave. So step one is, says the Rav, man is majestic. However, the covenantal community, as in, when he says that, he means the Jewish people, the way in which we relate to God, displayed another trait as well. Sacrificial action. The ability to give away and to renounce basic and alienable rights for the sake of the great vision. 
an ideal or for the benefit of another human being or community. Abraham, who dedicated his daily pursuits as a shepherd, a trader who accumulated wealth, was ready to give everything away. The story of the Kedah tells us about the readiness of our patriarch to sacrifice everything, including his only child. A uh, covenantal man knows when to act like a warrior, majestic, dignified, and proud, and when to part with everything he has. Why is it a criticism? God told him to do it. It's not a criticism. Well, it sounds like it's... No, no, it's not a criticism at all. He's saying that there's there's two... At, at, well, well, he's going to develop a little more, but there's, there's two... There's two, as you can say in a minute, there's, there's a dialectic, a thesis and antithesis of, on the one hand, being able to restrict yourself being able to bow your head in submission, being able to give everything away, and the other hand also to be proud and, and dignified and majestic and powerful and fight for what you believe in. It's a dialectic. It seems two totally different personalities. Right? This dialectic, the thesis and antithesis result, re- revolve around two mitos of the Holy One. And where do we get this from? Hashem Himself. Chesed and Gevura, which are the uh, chesed is chesed, which is a person giving up from themselves, and Gevura is strength. Strength or expansion is... Uh, uh, expansion contradiction. Sometimes the Almighty reveals himself with medium of Gevura and other times to the medium of Chesed. God himself will constrict himself. In, 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 in the Kabbalah, in this entire world was built on Chesed, was built on God's uh, Chesed, his ability to do what? In the Kabbalah, the idea of Tzimtzum, that God constricted himself to make space for human being, of God's all powerful, almighty. So where is there room for human being? How can a human being exist if God is everywhere? So the, the answer the, the Kabbalists gave is God with Tzimtzum himself. He pulled himself back to create a space for human beings. The ultimate chesed, in a way, is the fact that we're created. At the same time, God is all-powerful. He's all-powerful. He's all-strong. And the Rabbi Salvage goes on to say that if this is the way God acts, so we too have to mirror this. And again, it's a dialectic. It's two totally uh, antithetical ideas. Correct. Well, chesed, I mean, being strong We're not talking about chesed that you're going to go bring someone uh, soup when they're sick. Chesed, from the, we're talking about the, at the core of it, is the ability to constrict yourself. To, as he said, the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to give up what's really mine, my rights, so you can have something that, you can have something that I don't have. Or you can have something you don't have yourself. That's what he's saying. That Gvur is, we have inalienable rights to our property. Chesed is, I will give up my rights. I will give up my child because that's what's demanded of me. We're talking about, at its core, strip away the, the I guess, the way in which it plays out but at the core of it, it's the, in abstraction, the two totally competing ideas. One is asserting yourself, saying this is mine. The other one is saying, even though it's mine, I'm giving it away because I can constrict myself. Okay, you start playing with words, but it's, 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 the, I think the, the actual midos are contradictory. Lay and Rach were not merely people. Lay was the personification of midos hagvura. God Gevura is the strength. Strength. And Rizalvejik develops this a little at length. I didn't want to bring it all down, but if you look at Leia's life, and I, I'll just, I have a couple, a couple quotations, uh, quotes here. The mere fact that she consented to love and scheme demonstrated that she was courageous. I have to back. That she was courageous for she had what to fear. Meaning, she, when Lovin said, I'm going to switch you with your sister, and she said, okay, we'll do that. What she was saying is, I know what the future may hold, and I have the courage to say, I'm going to go, go ahead with it. Uh, that she agreed to have such an adventurous undertaking shows courage and valor. She was courageous in the, handling, in the handling of matters and was capable of defending her rights. She symbolized the strength of the Jewish character and the unshakable will of the Jew throughout the ages and millennia. 
It was because of that persistence, that stubbornness and tenacity, that we still remain a living people after 3,500 years of persecution and massacres. Leah had this gavura, this strength. Rachel, Rachel was the opposite of Leah. She was a tragic heroine who lives for others, not for herself. But think about it in a way. She was the beloved of Yaakov, and she wasn't even buried with Yaakov because she gave up that right. She was a tragic heroine. She gave up her most precious possessions and her elementary rights in order to make it possible for others to find the happiness denied them. Rachel represented chesed, the, again, the constriction of oneself, the ability to pull back, to give up of everything. A young girl who's in love with a boy gives up her fondest dreams to, to, for the sake of an older, unattractive sister. Uh, she let her sister take uh, Yaakov away for herself. She, she pushes away her own hopes and cherished wishes because her sister was also entitled to the same happiness which Providence had showered upon her, but denied to her sister. Again, so what we're seeing here is Leah is representing Gevura. Rachel is representing Chesed. And now let's see how that plays out in their respective children. Leah represented Gevura, and Yehuda was the son of Leah. Yehuda's personality radiated power. Uh, power. A prestige, um, right? Yaakov describes him as a crouching lion. Now, I, I should have brought the actual quote. I'm sorry. The, the, the text to uh, dictate did not work very well. Uh, the Kutzker Rebbe says as follows. What does it mean, right? We, we read the Pesach a minute ago. He was a crouching lion, that even when he falls down, he's a lion. He's a leader. Even when he fails, he's a lion. Why? Because what does a lion do? He doesn't look for others to help him back up, but he helps himself back up. That even though he fell, no one could have helped him rise up himself. He was self-assertant, valiant, and fearless. He personified dignity and majesty. Even when he yielded to temptation, and on two occasions he failed miserably, right, with Yosef and Tamar, to meet the challenge, of, uh, the challenge that confronted him, he acted not like a fearless lion, but a coward. He rose by himself without anyone extending a hand to help him. He sinned, but he repented beautifully and heroically with an open mind and a contrite heart. Meaning to say as follows... Yehuda had gavura. Yehuda had strength. He had courage. Even when he fell, he was a crouching lion. He helped himself back up. He found a way from within himself to look deep down in himself and help himself back up because that's what a courageous lion does. That's what a leader does. Not that the leaders don't fail. But, but Leah needed the help of Rachel. So she was in, in a weaker position. If it hadn't been for Rachel, Leah would not have gotten... What she, what she well, Leah was willing to go go with it because that's willing to go with go, was willing she, to go. She with, no, she was willing to go with love on even and even because she was courageous and said, "This is my, this is what fate dealt me. I'm going to take it. I'm not going to run away." That was Rosalvechi's point. So here's but here's where it gets interesting. So Yosef, uh, excuse me, Yehuda comes his mother's gavura, the power, the ability to be strong, self-assertive. At the same time, when you fall, to help yourself back up. Yosef belonged to a different moral group, that of the Hasidim, who are moral by inclination, people who, for whom sin has no power. The Satan has no access to them. Their, li- they, their lives are not stormy. They don't display the heroism of rising again because they do not fall. The heroism of being able to say, even though I am down, I can get myself back up, well, doesn't apply to Yosef because he didn't fall. They walk along a straight line. It's not, it's not rolling down a steep incline into an abyss, nor do they perform the miracle of stopping the downward movement at the brink of the cleft. Yosef never sinned. He resisted the charm and the vulgar of the Egyptian woman. And therefore, says thereof, who should be king? The representative of Gevura of, of Yehuda or the representative of Chesed, of Kedusha? Who should be king? Again, you have these two, these two... Now you see how far the contradiction and the tension runs between them. Yehuda is saying, I'm self-assertive, I'm a Gevura. Yosef is saying, I'm a holy person, I've always been holy. Well, who should be the leader of the Jewish people? Who should be Mashiach? So you would think, you would think... 
Who should be Mashiach? It should be the holy person, the one who never sinned, who has no temptation. And this is where we see the, par- the paradox of leadership. And this is a, a fascinating idea, which we're not going to have time to read it all inside. But just, there's a pre-tzadik from a tzadik of Moblin who points out here as well. He, he also says, Yosef wasn't about tshuva because Yosef never sinned. And therefore, the question is, so why then is Yosef not the leader? Why, why did Providence, as Rabbi Salvatic asked, favor Yehuda, the one who sinned, the Gevura, when Yosef was Kedusha, Yosef was Chesed, Yosef was the Chesed? What's going on here? So this is a fascinating, fascinating idea. If you go back to the beginning of Sefer Bereshis, second parsha, Eila told us Noach. Noach is Tzadik. Noach was a Tzadik, a righteous person. So much so, the Midrash says the, worst, the word Haya was... Anytime it says the word Haya, what does that mean? Haya was? From the very beginning to the very end, they were righteous. Noah was a righteous person from the beginning, from the moment he was born to the moment he was died. He was a righteous person. Yet it's ironic. Noah had no impact on anyone other than his immediate family. Now look at the next one. Where else do we use the word Haya? By Avraham. Says the Pasuk Echad Avram. Avraham was singular. Avram was unique. Says the, says the Midrash, one minute. If Mitchilaso Sofo, the word Haya means always was, well, we know the story of Avram. When did, was Avram born into righteousness? No. When did he be, believe in God? When did he come around to the morality of, of, of religion? When he was an old man. Exactly. If you look in the Rambam, the Rambam tells us. The Raman tells us, Only when he was weaned, so he was three years old, based on the Gemara, then he began to think about certain things. He began to look at the world, as the Raman say, there's a night, there's day, there's a sun, things can't go on their own, something had to have initiated this, this had to have started somehow, what could it be? And slowly he began to come around to the idea of God. And look, at it's so powerful. He was still Meshukah. The word Shukah is he was engrossed, ensconced in Orkazim, in all the tumult and impurity of Orkazim. He was living in a place of Orkazim, and probably, the way it seems like, he looked like a regular guy from Orkazim, doing what they all do, perhaps even worshiping idols. But at the same time, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, wait, something doesn't make sense here. If there's a world, I have to have a starting point. And he's going through all this entire thing. And it wasn't until eventually he comes around to realize it. So the Gemara actually tells us, some say he was three, some say he was 40, says the, uh, says the Haggai's Maimon in the commentary, he says, no, you know what it is? They're both right. When he was three, it started. And then for the next 37 years, when he was still living in Orkazdim, looking like an Orkazdim, probably living the life of someone like Orkazdim, he was slowly developing and coming around to the idea of what true monotheism is, and what morality is, etc. So, Avram wasn't holy from the beginning. He wasn't Noah. Yet, ultimately, who had the biggest influence in history of the world? Avram, not Noah. What's going on here? And why do we... So, the two questions are... Question number one is, why are we saying Avram was always, always holy? And question number two was, why did Avram have all the impact when, after all, he's more a Yehuda character? He sinned. He failed. He was spent years in Orkazim with idols when Noah was mitchilos of at sofo at tzaddik. You say the ground of a false shuv is holier than the ground of a... Of a so what, what, what does that mean? Right, so that's... It's that's more attainable. So I'll tell you this. Look, look at the... Isn't, uh, isn't the personality of a, uh, of a righteous person... Or who, like a who fails and gets up. That's what, Elliot, that's what Elliot's saying, but the question is why. Well, because 
Joseph didn't know anything other than... Okay, so so let's, let's hold that thought. Listen to, listen to the following Gemara. The Gemara in Yuma asked the following question. Why did Shaul, King Shaul, right? The first kingship in the Jewish people was not David, it was Shaul. Why was his malchus? Why did his kingship not last? And the Gemara says something very strange. You would think it would mention the fact he did this or did that or did... Nope, says the Malchus. Why did the kingship of Shaul not continue? Why? Because there was no flaw. Because he didn't sin. Because he didn't sin. Which point the Noam Elimelech, Elimelech asks, shouldn't it be the opposite? Because he didn't sin, there was no flaw in his house. That should be the reason why it should last. What's going on here? And the Gemara goes on to say as follows. We do not appoint a leader of the Jewish people unless there is a box of shrutzim. What are shrutzim? Creeping, crawling, slithery creatures hanging behind them. Meaning to say as follows. It's an expression. You cannot be a leader of the Jewish people unless you have your box of shrutzim. Unless you yourself have at some point experienced temptation, experienced sin, know what it's like to be an ordinary person. And that's the crux of it. And this is what Noam Elimelech says as well. That if you want to influence, if you want to actually influence be a leader, you can't be a Yosef. You can't be someone who's a chas who doesn't experience what it's like to live life. You sit and learn your entire life in the base medrash and come out and how do you relate to people? How do you relate to people if you've never experienced temptation? How do you relate to people if you can't know what it feels like to have the guilt of sinning? To know what it means to walk around with your own box of shrutzim? So you can only be a leader if you're someone who yourself sinned in your own way. This is what, it's a, a powerful idea. It's a very powerful idea. And more than that, just to answer the, the second question, so how is it that Noah, we said Noah was always a tzaddik. He never sinned. He had no, he had no, no influence because pe- people couldn't relate to him. Avram, people can relate to him because he sinned. But the question then begs the question. But at the same time, he wasn't righteous from beginning to the end. So why does the major say he was righteous from the beginning to the end? The answer is because if you're able to take your kubush al your box of sins, and utilize it as a springboard for, for the, not only your growth, but the growth of others, you utilize it to be able to relate to people, to know what they're going through, so then what that does is it turns it into, and this is your point, the Baal Tshuva. It turns it into your, in a place that's higher, because you're now taking it and saying, the experience I had, it's not that I want to wish it away and will it away. I'm happy I had it because it made me who I am. And it made me, it gave me the ability to relate to people. And it made me a better leader. Actually, it made me a leader because of it. And therefore, when you do that, so then, you, yeah, from the beginning to the end, it's always looked at, you're on the journey of, 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 of perfection. You're always on the journey of leadership. You're always on the journey of sitkas, of righteousness, because you take even the things, when you fall down, you turn it and utilize it for growth. And this brings us back to Rabbi Soloveitchik. Who then should be king? The representative of Gvura of Yehuda or the representative of Chesed and Kedusha? Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, and I always like it, by the way, when the Rav, who is a Litvak, and Rav Tzadik HaKohanim Ablin, Noam Elimelech, who are Hasidim, say the same thing, because then you know the truth there. The king is a trustee, a leader of the people. He must possess all facets of Gevura. He must possess everything, meaning to say. The ability to acquire, to defend, to, to possess, and to protect. Sacrificial life, and to protect. Meaning to say, you have to be able to relate to the people. You relate to the people both by being their leader and in their high moments, but also in their low moments, to know what they're going through. Sacrificial life as in the life of Yosef, is good as far as the individual is concerned. But the king cannot be a sacrificial type at the expense of the nation. David could be king. He was able. Why? Because just like Judah, he too went to the greatest heights and then fell into an abyss. Right? David and, David and Bathsheba. 
Yet he managed, like Yehuda, to rise again to still greater heights. David is the great teacher of tshuva, repentance. Only the ruler who encounters sin, who falls for short intervals, who also knows the art of rising, of lifting himself up, only he will understand the people and have compassion for the unfortunate ones who strayed from those who get, for those who get lost and fall. The saints have no understanding of sin and error. The fact, sacrificial soul is too sensitive to insist and to demand and to defend. Judah was declared the winner. He did that. He, uh, why? He just did because he, he again. Uh, sorry. Uh, because from time he, he knew what sinners was. He knew that a sinner should not be barred from the Jewish people. He knew what tshuva was. He knew how to relate to people and tell people about tshuva. Ultimately, he knew, Yehuda knew what it meant to fall, but he knew how to then rise and rise even higher. So to answer our questions, to, to quickly go but review, we say that we have this machlokas, this big debate between Yehuda and Yosef, but it far outweighs and outlasts their two pers- pers- per- personas. It's about the personalities of Yehuda and Yosef. Both of them are prime for leadership. Both of them live very similar lives, both of them with attention to each other. So why then ultimately does Yehuda win? So what Salvechik suggests as follows. Because leadership is not about saintly, only saintliness. Leadership is about being able to relate to everyone and every facet of everyone and know what it's like to be in the trenches, to know what it's like to be there in sin, to know what it's like to live with the guilt of sin. And that requires the gavura, the strength of a Yehuda, someone who fell, but also someone who's able to rise again. Yosef was wonderful. Yosef at Sadiq. But saintliness, as the Rav said, is for the individual, not for the nation. I guess that's like a Yeah. Or any questions, comments?